welcome to the Virtual Vascular Podcast. My name is Susanne Stokmans. My name is Petr Zlotanovic. Today, we are going to dive deeper into the recently published Virtual Vascular Textbook chapter dedicated to treatment of popliteal artery aneurysms. We are pleased to have Dr. Martin Björk, Dr. Anne Servin, and Dr. Igor Konchar with us today to provide their expert opinion on the burning topic of popliteal artery aneurysm management. Dr. Martin Björk is currently the editor-in-chief of the European Journal for Vascular and Endovascular Surgery. Dr. Anne Servin defended her thesis on popliteal artery aneurysms at Uppsala University, Sweden, but works at Salrenska University Hospital in Gothenburg. Dr. Iro Konchar works at the Clinic for Vascular and Endovascular Surgery in Belgrade, Serbia. All of them have a key interest in popliteal artery aneurysm treatment. Thank you all for joining us today in this podcast. Thank you so much uh, for this uh, beautiful introduction. We are very happy to be here and discuss this important disease. Dr. Björk, during your long career as a vascular surgeon, what do you think have been the three most important advances in the management of popliteal artery aneurysms? That's that's a a bit of a tricky question, but the, the first and maybe most important step was the introduction of catheter-based thrombolysis. That made it possible to improve the outflow and thereby dramatically improve the outcome in patients with acute limb ischemia. And when this treatment came in the 90s, more or less, the very high amputation rates that we used to have in these patients improved dramatically. So I think that was maybe the first and most important step. The second one, especially for me personally, was when I discovered the advantages of performing the definite repair with the posterior approach. This is such a beautiful operation, dissecting the popliteal fossa carefully and repairing the aneurysm with a short interposition graft, preferably a vein. This is technically demanding, but the result is a game changer in most cases. And the third important step was actually when we started to screen all patients with abdominal aortic aneurysm. I started this already in the 90s in the north of Sweden, where I had a very high prevalence in my catchment area. And later we started the national screening program in Uppsala first in 2006. And early on, I discovered the advantage of screening the AAA patients for popliteal artery aneurysm as well, transforming this difficult acute situation into an elective, civilized, surgical situation. Uh, So those are the three steps that I recall were the most important in my career. Dr. Shervin, what would be the indication for elective repair of a popliteal artery aneurysm? Well, the general suggestion is Uh, two centimeters in diameter with thrombus. And there are studies to support less risk for complication at this diameter. However, some of these studies are quite old and there are questions of how they measured actually the diameter. And there are some data to suggest that even smaller aneurysms can cause complication, especially embolization or some occlude as well. On the other hand, there are data whether you leave them to larger size and if there were no tortuicity, there were not so much complications. We also had a study where we could see that 
smaller vessels, smaller diameter of the vessels below, perhaps were one of the reasons why they occluded. So there are some gray areas as to the indication. And even if you have two centimeters as a guideline, you need to have some flexibility in this, I think. I can give you an example. If we have a patient with a small aneurysm on one side that occludes or embolizes, and then you treat him and you find the bilateral aneurysm also small, then I wouldn't hesitate to offer surgery well below two centimeters. So an individualized treatment in these cases is very important. I think so. Also, if you have an elder person with perhaps two and a half or three centimeters diameters, no symptoms, wide arteries, then I would not treat him prophylactically, yeah. of course. Yeah, definitely. That's that's really interesting hints for the trainees. And Dr. Conchar, uh, which patients would you select for a popliteal artery aneurysm screening? Also, if a patient has been diagnosed with a popliteal artery aneurysm, would you perform additional screening of other vascular territories? Thank you for uh, for the invitation uh, at the beginning. And uh, I would like to thank to Martin and Anne to invited me to write with them this chapter in the Virtual Vasco, which was a real pleasure to collaborate. And regarding this very simple and easy question that is uh, very difficult to apply in the practice, uh, I would screen all patients with abdominal aortic aneurysms for popliteal artery aneurysms. I would screen the other leg if you find the popliteal aneurysm in one. And in patients where we find actually popliteal artery aneurysm, I would screen for AAA. However, it is not so widely accepted in clinical practice. I know that Sweden has this practice, but uh, in most of Europe, uh, this practice is not so well accepted as far as I know. And uh, in Serbia, where I live, we are just now starting with uh, screening for abdominal aortic aneurysms. And Dr. Konchar, can you say anything about the risk if you find a popliteal artery aneurysm? What is the risk of also having an abdominal artery aneurysm or maybe also the other way around? Yeah, the, the risk is about 30%. Dr. Bjork, uh, when evaluating, let's say, a 40-year-old patient with a popliteal artery aneurysm, what should every vascular surgeon be aware of? In such a young patient, I would outrule the uncommon pathologies, for instance, of popliteal entrapment syndrome or a pseudoaneurysm that could be uh, secondary to a trauma. In popliteal entrapment, it's not uncommon, actually, that you can have a post-stenotic aneurysm development. If, if it is a classical popliteal artery aneurysm in such a young patient, I would, of course, take a family history, uh, and I would also perform a genetic testing. We have a, a screening tool together with our uh, clinical geneticists where they can test around 70 different monogenetic uh, disorders. And, and there are quite a few of those, and we are discovering new ones all the time. So, so that I would consider in such a young patient. And of course, as Igor already mentioned, in, in such a case, it's even more important to screen the entire aorta and the iliac arteries and the femoral and, and also, of course, the contralateral popliteal artery. Because if you have a true aneurysm at that age, it's very often multiple. One problem when the, with the genetic testing is, is when you have the patients where you don't find anything. Uh, I think we all have made surgery or aortic surgery when you know that this is something wrong with this vessel. 
And then you need to test even these people further on and do another ultrasound perhaps or another CT scan later on, not to lose them. Otherwise, it's easy to, if you have a syndrome, then you know what to do. But if you don't, it's easy to lose them. And what would you suggest, like check it again after five or 10 years or what kind of interval should we um, should we take with those kinds of patients? It's always difficult because it depends if you have some uh, some dilatation or not, like are the iliacs okay? Do you have a widened thoracic artery? But I think you should do the whole checkup and perhaps five years later, you check with the ultrasound in these cases because they are quite often young. Mm-hmm. But this, I mean, this is really individualized. Uh, Dr. Konchar, what would be your preferable approach if the patient had a popliteal entrapment syndrome and why? If you need to have something preferable, that means you have to try different things and then to prefer something. But in terms of entrapment syndrome and popliteal aneurysm, I think there are not many surgeons in Europe who, who experience uh, so many procedures. I think that uh, if probably posterior approach would be preferable because you can correct the entrapment and treat the aneurysms. But I should be aware and beware if you go medial approach, not to put the graft in the same tunnel where the artery was, because in that case, you can have entrapment of the graft. I think with the ones we've had, I'm, I'm, uh, I think in some cases, it has been a question of moving the muscles and loosen up the artery, perhaps more than, unless it's occluded, of course. But I know one case where they did all that and it looked good, but she didn't get any better. So sometimes perhaps it's it's difficult to know if this was actually the cause. If you should look at old people and check if they have uh, lose their pulse when they bend their their foot, perhaps you would find more than you think. So I think this is a very difficult uh, disease, actually. It's it's actually very complicated. There are six different forms of popliteal yes. entrapment, and <clears throat> I've operated on about around thirty patients with this disease, which is quite a lot, actually. I think, in comparison, um, and they are so different depending on on the mechanism behind it, and uh, but m- many of them do really well, especially if they have a. Um, uh, very clear mechanism behind it. Yeah. Uh, and of course, there is always the decision making if you are going to sacrifice the muscle or uh, or if you're going to sacrifice the artery. Uh, and I I almost always prefer to sacrifice part of the muscle to have a good uh, arterial interposition graft. And did like Igor suggested, posterior approach operation, because it's only when you operate from behind that you can actually see and correct the mechanism behind the entrapment. Thank you. And what about if you have like a cystic convertitial disease? Uh, would you replace the artery or just do the removal of the cyst, or how do you approach this? I I have actually preferred to remove the cyst. And with actually very good results, to my surprise, because when you remove the cyst in the adventitial cystic disease, what's left of the artery is very thin, actually. And you would almost expect that thin artery to develop an aneurysm or 
an occlusion or something. But to my surprise, they do very well, actually. Can't recall I had any relapses either. Uh, but I didn't operate as many with um, cystic disease as with entrapment. Only about five or six patients. Um, and in most of, of those cases, I only removed the cyst. Uh, very meticulously, though, you have to, because the, the cysts are often in multiple compartments, and you have to remove all of it. In one case, I also did an interposition graft, I remember. So there's not much uh, research on, on such rare diseases. So Dr. Bjork, uh, uh, let's say you have a patient who is a 75-year-old, as a grade 3 male with an asymptomatic 3-centimeter popliteal artery aneurysm confined to P2 segment. Would you prefer open or endovascular approach? And can you please provide the explanation why? I think this was a very tricky question, actually. And I had to look up ASA grade 3, what's included <laughs> in, in that definition. And, and then I found that it's if you have a pacemaker, for instance, then it's ASA grade 3. Uh, if you have hepatitis, um, if you have had a myocardial infarction three months ago. So there are, there are, it's a rather variable group of patients. And in some of these patients, I think open surgery is quite possible. Like for instance, with a pacemaker, it's not a, an issue to make a, an open operation. Uh, whereas of course, if you have a respiratory failure or renal failure with a <clears throat> dialysis patient, it's a bit trickier to do open surgery. So I would suggest a multidisciplinary <clears throat> conference where you discuss the patient with uh, anesthesia and, and maybe involve more than one vascular surgeon. So you make uh, an MDT conference where you, uh, you reach a decision and also share the burden of that decision because of course, complications are more common uh, in these ASA grade three patients. On the other hand, if you go for an endovascular treatment and that becomes occluded and you have to do thrombolysis and B operations, you may actually kill the patient. So maybe it's better to do a good operation from the start. I think there is actually one study from Johnson, I think, where they just checked for ASA three grade uh, patients and looked at the outcome, which was not bad, only open surgery, because that was some years ago. And I think you're absolutely right, Martin, you need to weigh these patients really carefully, because you don't, you can't afford complications to your treatment, either with uh, Stentcraft or with open surgery. I, I think that uh, surgical treatment of popliteal artery is not like surgical treatment of uh, aortic aneurysms, so you don't need to clamp uh, uh, huge uh, vasculature, you don't have uh, excessive bleeding. So ASA is a, uh, well, classification that we use, but as Martin said, it's not so clear. And I think you should bear in mind, if you have a complication, you would have then even, even worse situation. So probably it's better to have a good first operation with open repair, even in a higher risk patient, and then uh, it's fine then to have a risk with endo, and then have another open. I also think these patients are a bit different from CLTI because uh, chronic limb ischemia, they are much 
in much worse condition when you start. You have the diabetes, you have all the complications, and these patients are somewhat healthier, even if they are elderly. <clears throat> They're often quite fit, actually. They go to the gym, my patients, and then they include on the gym. This is what uh, happened yeah. in the last two weeks. Yes, they do. Well, I was just um, thinking about the, the endovascular repair, which with you all say that is second best, actually. But for example, there is a patient who has enormous edema or, or some, some other disease that is it's, it's too risky to do an open surgery, and you would decide to do an endovascular approach. Is there any preferable stents that you use? And also, I was wondering if there, because Anne, you just said that they occlude their popliteal arteries in the gym. So would you suggest that they wouldn't do certain things like uh, being on there with bent knees too long? Or should they have any lifestyle changes after they get an endovascular repair? If you if you use an endovascular repair and then you tell your patient, oh, you cannot bend your knees, then they go for holiday and sit in the car for a three-hour drive, and then they come back to your hospital with an occlusion. So actually, if you want to have good results with stent grafts, you need to really select your patients, or rather the, the arteries. We have open surgery as first option always, but if it's an elderly or frail patient, then I want them preferably to be asymptomatic to have quite large uh, landing zones, so I can use an eight millimeter stent graft. And I think Viabon is what is used actually. But if I have an eight millimeter, I know that there will be no oversizing. There will be no big risk of kinking. I don't want the vessel to be tor too tortuous. Uh, and I, I check with a bent knee, preferably I think before and after. So you know that there are no kinks. And then I think you can have good results. And then you also know what will happen when the patient bends his knee. Dr. Conchar, um, if you would choose to have an open repair, and we already discussed a little bit because you said the posterior approach, it, it would be preferable. Would there be any situation where you prefer a medial approach or another, a different approach from the posterior approach? Preoperative assessment is important that you clearly know where is the proximal uh, healthy zone and distal is, as well. We would, we would choose for the posterior approach whenever is possible. I know Martin would say it's always possible, but uh, not in our center, we do a lot uh, posterior approach, maybe 80%. We don't use it if you have a symptomatic popliteal aneurysm with uh, uh, leg ischemia and thrombosis of the crawl arteries, because we think that it's difficult to do thrombectomy. And of course, if uh, proximal healthy zone is uh, very high, we would then go for medial approach. Yeah. In terms yeah. of uh, graft selection, vein is better, but sometimes we use uh, PTFE as well. And I just want to make a short reply there because the short saphenous vein is very seldom useful. I, I mean, it's not good enough. It's not big enough. So it's too thin. So it's extremely uncommon that I use the short saphenous vein. On the other hand, I... In most cases, I can find a part of the great saphenous vein close to the knee, and by tilting the patient, maybe 20 or 30 degrees, you can actually harvest the vein close to the knee without um, having to turn the patient. And that, of course, requires that you map it and you mark it before the operation so you can easily find it. But and would you use the same incision? Or would you make an extra incision? An extra incision. Okay. Always a separate incision. Yeah. Of course.
course, if there is not a good enough vein, I do use um, I do use PTFE or background graft. It's better to use prosthetic material uh, than to use a very thin vein in the popliteal fossa because the artery is, is often quite wide. Dr. Serving, can you please explain uh, to our audience and trainees what are the most important technical points and pitfalls when using the posterior approach? Well, as we already mentioned, the patient will be in a prone position. And the first step is to make a nice lazy S incision and to uh, um, put this in the fold of the knee so you can have a nice healing because this is a sensitive area. So that's the first step. And then you open up the fascia, you will find the tibial nerve and you need to be really careful both with the dissection and with the retractors. It's easy to pull a little bit too hard here. And after that, well, the vein, the popliteal vein is most often, I think, glued to the aneurysm because there is quite often an inflammation. So you need to have some really careful dissection because otherwise it will be quite some bleeding and not really easily stopped. Uh, so you need to carefully move it, uh, relieve it from the artery and take it to the side. Uh, and then when you have your proximal and distal control, you open up the aneurysm, of course, and then you, let, you need to suture all the back leakage into the sac. So you won't have an end leakage or a bleeding afterwards. Uh, and when you have your interposition graft, and the last one I actually did with a small lesser vein, Martin, just to mention, but if you have a good uh, interposition graft, you need to tighten up the vessel a little bit because the artery is quite often elongated. So you can pull it together and then you can use a shorter interposition graft than you actually think. And I think this is a very important step because otherwise you will have risk for kinking. So if you have a leg a little bit bent, then you can check it out and then you check so it's not too short, but tighten up the arteries. And I think that will be very nice. And then you need to take some time to get a good hemostasis because this is a confined space and you don't want any bleeding. So take time and good care with that. And if you're in doubt, then put a drainage, but careful hemostasis. And then you end it up and finish with the nice sutures. I think part of the difficulty in the dissection is not to injure the veins. <clears throat> there are often multiple veins. Uh, it's like a plexus of, of this veins. And uh, you often have to, off, uh, to sacrifice one or two of these branches but you have to be careful not to sacrifice too much of the venous uh, backflow because then you may, of course, get a problem with the swelling of the leg and etc. So, um, my in my experience, you have to do a meticulous dissection before you choose which vein to sacrifice. I think I think the problem is often that everything is so glued. So just to get it loose, you, can't, you, you will have bleeding and you need to take branches, but you will see it quite clearly where the, large, where the vein is largest, I think, and you follow that. And you try to keep as many outflows, of, of course, as possible, but I think you have to sacrifice them, otherwise you won't reach. Yeah, exactly. But I think you have to wait so you don't sacrifice too early because if you sacrifice one of the venous branches too early, you might later find that that was actually a vital part of the venous system. It's, it's an important point. 
it's just it's difficult actually. Dr. Contrary, can you just uh, touch upon about the what are the important technical exp- uh, aspects and pitfalls? Medial approach. Yeah, I, I would outline the planning. So you need to know your proximal and distal uh, anastomotic sites. And as Martin, Martin mentioned, the ultrasound can be used to map the vein. So you should plan your incisions. Should you do everything in one incision or separate incisions for veins, separate for arteries? Then uh, you should be aware, should you remove the aneurysm or you would just do exclusion in the bypass? If you do exclusion in the bypass, you should then avoid putting a bypass through the popliteal fossa because you can have a compression of the graft with the, from the aneurysm. And the rest are some technical details regarding the bypass itself. Should you do reverse or in situ bypass in terms of uh, diameter of the vein and, uh, and the artery? Anyway, if you do exclusion, you should follow the aneurysm thoroughly in the future because from the publications, we know about 20% of them increase from the so-called type 2 endolic. Removing the aneurysm or not, I think it's a big dilemma because if you start to remove the whole aneurysm through medial approach, it can be really technically demanding. I don't think, I, with a medial approach, I would avoid removing the aneurysm, I think. Even in, with a posterior approach, mm-hmm. I don't remove the aneurysm. I just suture mm-hmm. because it's too much dissection and risk for bleeding. So I leave it and I cover mm-hmm. cover my graft with it. Uh, and I would not, with the medial approach, I would not try it. But sometimes with the medial approach, it can be actually be back bleeding from your ligation. Yeah, that could be that's, tricky that's the problem because from posterior yeah. approach, you can ligate all the branches. Yes. You need to remove the whole aneurysm, but you open the sac, yes. you remove everything and you just close the sac. But if you open the sac in the medial approach, you might find yourself in a problem because some tributaries can bleed from the very... Um, yeah dangerous, I'd say, difficult to approach part of the aneurysm, which is deep in the fossa. So, um, Dr. Conchar, you said when you don't remove the aneurysm with the medial approach, uh, you would you have to follow up the aneurysm to see if it's not growing. And how would you suggest to do the follow-up? How how many times should you let pass before you start doing it? Well, if, if you do an exclusion, one another issue, important issue is the angle of the saponose vein when entering in the, in the below the knee uh, part. Uh, uh, so this angle should be well planned because uh, your anastomosis should be more distally in order to have as uh, a smaller uh, angle as possible. But in terms of following, uh, you should do, I think ultrasound is enough. I don't know if annual is too too frequent, but maybe biannual ultrasound can be quite enough, I think. You can use the the same exam to follow the bypass as well. I think just as perhaps you do this or you mentioned it, but I think another tips and trick is that you actually do an end-to-end anastomosis with your medial approach to avoid the steep angle. I think that's really helpful. Yes, end-to-end anastomosis, I think, uh, are useful, but depends on the diameter of the popliteal artery, both proximal and distal. All right. Thank you so much for your very um, uh, beautiful uh, review of the different surgical techniques. Um, And now I have another case for you. Uh, Dr. Bjork, if you had a 65-year-old male patient presenting with a 5-centimeter thrombosed popliteal artery aneurysm located in the P1 and P2 segments, 
with a grade 2B acute limb ischemia with absent runoff, would you prefer going straight to surgery or first performing catheter-guided thrombolysis? Again, this is a tricky situation because grade 2B acute limb ischemia means that there is some nervous impairment. Now, if it's only light sensitivity impairment and uh, the patient can move the leg, then I would still go for thrombolysis. Uh, and actually, by adding aspiration or some kind of mechanical uh, part to the thrombolysis, you can uh, you can <clears throat> get revascularization to happen quicker because the long-term result will be much better if you first open the uh, outflow vessels, even if only one of them is open. But then, of course, if you have a, a, a complete uh, neurological impairment, the patient can't move the leg, then you have to go to open surgery directly. The result in such a situation is much worse than if you have take your time to improve the runoff vessels. Uh, and I've been surprised sometimes how, how successful thrombolysis is. Uh, but it often has to go on for maybe 48 hours, sometimes even longer. What do you say, Anne? Well, first of all, uh, I think it's a question if the SFI is occluded all the way up or if you have it only in the popliteal segment. Because if it's occluded all the way up, I would go crossover. So I make sure I can put my thrombolysis catheter appropriately. Otherwise, I have an anti-grade approach and I puncture the vessel anti-gradely in the same leg, of course. Uh, I use a micropuncture set to begin with to be certain that you don't miss your goal or so you have uh, less risk for bleeding at thrombolysis. I think this is a good way. You use your five or six French catheter and put it in place. Uh, then I go down with a catheter and I prefer a starter, a guide wire that has a blunt, nice uh, tip so you will not perforate on your way down. And then you can see how far you can go. Is the thrombus easy to pass? And I go further down. If not, well, you stop where you're safe because you don't want to perforate the vessel. Uh, and when I've done that, then I put my thrombolysis. I choose the length of the thrombolysis catheter. And I want the side holes to be just at the, uh, the beginning of the thrombus to begin there. So I can deliver on top of the thrombus, so to say, and the rest will be delivered within the thrombus. We use Actelis, uh, whatever uh, thrombolysis agent you use, but so you, you don't want it to disappear where the vessel is already open. Um, and I think it's a good thing if you have access to a mechanical thrombectomy, as Martin mentioned, you can use that before you place your catheter and that you will shorten the length and you can open up more and put your catheter further down. If not, I think it's a good thing if you start your thrombolysis in the morning, you check your patient later on in the evening so you can replace the catheter and then you can make it quicker, quicker steps and have, you don't need to have 48 hours perhaps. You can um, have a more efficient thrombolysis in the vessel. That's, uh, I think you made a good point there and that uh, checking the, uh, the yeah. progress of the thrombolysis on a rather regular basis, maybe every eight or 12 hours. Yes. It's, uh, 
is something that can shorten the, the total thrombolysis time, which is, of course, beneficial to reduce bleeding complications. But Definitely. And I think one of the, the major problems, at least in my hospital, the, that is to find an uh, ICU place to put the patient. Because another important step is the supervision. Because if you're unlucky, well, the thrombus will dislodge and go downwards, and then you need to be really quick. Um, so you need to check the leg and see how it works. And sometimes it's not so easy to find a place at the hospital that will accept them. And can you say anything about the results of this preoperative thrombolysis? Well, I think as Martin mentioned, um, <laughs> I have the slides, but not here. Uh, no, there was a, a study from a colleague of ours, a Danish colleague, that showed really nicely how you could compare uh, less uh, amputations if you did thrombolysis. And these were the patients with the poorest outflow to begin with. So I would say we have, for example, we have one milligram per hour of actylase. And I think other hospitals have other uh, ideas of how much to give. But I think if you if you give this and you also have your thromectomy device, you can have really good results. And do you use maybe high bolus protocol when you installate the tissue plasmin activators such as actylase? No, sometimes we do like two milligram per hour for two hours or something because we, we have no evidence at all, but we think that is a good idea. And then we continue with one milligram. But I think the, to have a quick checkout for eight or 12 hours, I think that perhaps can diminish the amount you need to give. We would never start with 10 milligrams. I think that's too much, but maybe with four, two. And then uh, like Anne say continue with one milligram an hour. Sometimes we even reduce it to half a milligram an hour. It could be a mistake to use too high a dosage because then you have more bleeding complications. Uh, what's your practice, Igor, in that regard? We developed another approach. So we first we, we focus on uh, outflow. So we go for the open approach. We uh, explore the popliteal artery. We do Fogarty thrombectomy. And then we apply the thrombolytics uh, interoperatively into the crural arteries. And it goes while we are preparing the procedure, like dissecting the proximal part uh, of the artery, the harvesting the vein. So it takes time. And while we are doing this, the thrombolytics uh, is actually going into the crural arteries. Sometimes we choose one, sometimes we're doing two crural arteries, depend on the outflow in the imaging, but also depends on the Fogarty success. We also check the backflow at the beginning, and then we check from time to time backflow during the procedure. So we see how it goes. Actually, Fogarty thromectomy, as we know, is removing the, the clots from the main part of the artery, but not from the branches and not from the pedal arteries. And this is where thrombolytics, I think, uh, are doing a great job. So when we started to do this, we noticed that some extremities we really saved. So this, this strategy uh, showed to us good results. And I think it saves time and it uh, avoids this, uh, uh, you know, repeated uh, imaging and repeating uh, communication with ICU, anesthesia, etc. And probably because we do this, we don't, uh, we would not have a lot of patience to, to wait for two days with uh, such a severe ischemia. We wouldn't continue for 48 hours 
if it was severe ischemia because uh, it's only if we have like a 2A uh, and maybe a slight 2B that is reversed after aspiration and, and we when we start with the thrombolysis, we notice some improvement. Uh, of course, we couldn't go on for 48 hours if if there was severe ischemia. In my in my practice, ischemia can often improve during thrombolysis uh, more than than you had expected. But we also use the intraoperative thrombolysis, as you describe it, in those with the most severe ischemia that cannot wait. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and where we do open surgery. And I think this is an excellent uh, technology that you uh, you clamp the distal vessels, you infuse two or four milligrams of uh, TPA into each of the crural vessels while you do the proximal repair. And uh, that opens up some of the smaller vessels, hopefully. But actually, we did some research on that in those patients who underwent perioperative thrombolysis had a rather poor outcome. But that's, of course, a matter of selection bias, that uh, they are the most, with most severe ischemia. So it's not really the technique, but rather the patient. You need to choose amputation as a primary procedure yeah. as well. I think it's very important to save the life, actually, of the patient. Because we have to take into account that even if we start the operation, we would need probably two, three or four hours. So this would probably sometimes uh, cause a lot of uh, post uh, revascularization uh, syndrome that can really uh, jeopardize the patient condition. We shouldn't forget this because we usually focus on you know saving the leg, saving the leg. And- now, when you mentioned uh, this uh, study of yours, I realized that sometimes we also do amputation. No, I think uh, this is really an important point. And, and I think uh, sometimes young vascular surgeons don't have experience enough to decide on amputation. And, and the patient may suffer from that. And the more experience you get as a vascular surgeon, uh, the easier it is to actually make a decision to amputate a leg. That's sort of the a core uh, value of our speciality to, to avoid amputation. But we had to be brave enough to give up sometimes. Just yes. before we amputate the leg, I just like to add, if you have a patient with quite a severe uh, ischemia, of course, this patient I wouldn't take for thrombolysis, but I, I must say that I think thrombolysis is first option if you have the time. But if you have a severe ischemia, I think it's important to, and you actually decide to, to operate, uh, to place a shunt as quickly as you can and to do mm. the fasciotomy as quickly as you can, and then you can start working. And then perhaps you have a chance if you think this is the appropriate way. And then we can talk about amputation again. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank yeah. you for this excellent review of this um, of this challenging uh, topic of uh, of thrombolysis and uh, acute limb ischemia and popliteal artery aneurysms. And then we go already to the last question, uh, which is for all of you to discuss. Uh, because with the new available evidence, since the publications of the most recent guidelines about uh, PAD and uh, acute limb ischemia, what would be, in your opinion, 
the main points that will change in the future guidelines when we talk specifically about popliteal artery aneurysms? I would like to have a more tailored indication uh, to like to know more apart from diameter, what other anatomical features or patient-related factors actually will give complications. I think that's an important point. I think thrombolysis uh, is also important. And there is a lot of heterogeneous practice in the in Europe about uh, thrombolytic strategies, actually. Maybe this can help. And maybe I could add also on top of that mechanical thrombectomy, mm-hmm. because um, there is a very interesting technical development of that technology that comes actually from neuroradiologists have developed some very nice devices to treat stroke patients. And I think uh, similar devices will be useful also in the leg. Those may improve the outcome in our acute limb ischemia patients. I also would wish for a better understanding for when stent grafts actually work and how you how you choose your patients. Because as you described before, Susanna, that... Uh, if we have a big leg edema, you have a sick patient, you would like to put the stent graft there. But if this occludes, then you're in a much worse position, right? So I'd like to have a clearer understanding on when does it work? When can you actually think this will work? Well, I think this was a perfect ending of this very interesting podcast. Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion on the management of popliteal artery aneurysms. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you again for your time and availability. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank it you. was our privilege to speak to you. Before we wrap up, we would like to take a moment to introduce a new feature, which some of you might have already noticed, called the eLibrary's Topic of the Month, where we announce the new chapter of the virtual vascular and add great additional videos and podcasts from the eLibrary. This email goes out to all ESVS members, so if you are not a member yet, yet, subscribe now and don't miss out on great educational content. We will be back soon with more virtual vascular and other podcasts. Have a great day. Talk to you soon.